Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Again, I'm so glad that you could join us today as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Today we'll be in the 12th chapter and really that's kind of a turning point. That brings us to the second half of the book of Revelation and we see a little bit of shift in the way the book flows from here on out. Uh, verses or chapters, not verses, 12 through 14 kind of uh, reflect back and explain this scroll that John consumed uh, there at the end of chapter 10 or beginning of chapter 10. So we'll we'll kind of dig into that and some of the symbolism that's explained there. We're, we're dealing with both cosmic things and earthly things all expressed in these next couple of chapters. So I know it's a wild ride, but I'm glad that you could join us as we continue our study of the book of Revelation together. Quick reminder, if you're just joining us for the first time, I encourage you to go back to chapter one, the podcast for chapter one, and begin there. It lays a, a framework for understanding, a, a foundation, if you will, that we are building on through this study, and it'll just help you to understand what we're talking about, some of the references I make. So I encourage you to go back and join us at that point and work your way forward. But wherever it is along the way you're joining us, it's great to have you as part of the podcast today and as we study God's Word together. In fact, in preparation for studying God's Word together, let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. You have given us your Word. You have given us this book of Revelation, this vision that you showed John and and told him to write down and share with those early churches. Father, the, the message of encouragement, the message of victory in you, the, the message that calls us to allegiance to you is still the same. And it still speaks to our hearts and our situations today. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that your grace and your mercy, that your forgiveness, that your love is unchanging. It still applies to our hearts and our lives today. And now, Father, as we join together in studying your word, help us to truly grasp hold of it. Help us to hear your voice speaking to us through your word, challenging our hearts, drawing our lives in line with your will. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we begin chapter 12, I want to try to help you understand how this fits in. I've already shared with you that the, the understanding of the layout of the book of Revelation that I'm using kind of is a nesting doll approach. It's this idea that chapters six through eight with the seven seals give us one account of the judgment of God culminating in that great and terrible day, the white throne judgment uh, there at the end of eight or with about the middle of chapter eight, actually eight, uh, five thereabouts. And then starting in the second half of chapter eight through chapter 11, you have the seven trumpets, uh, the seven seals reflected, uh, visions out of Zechariah and the horsemen, um, 8 through 11, we're talking about plagues of Exodus represented as coming uh, the trumpet blast and then the plague comes and and there's this little 
interlude there where we stop and we have this scroll that is given to John and what the scroll has to say and what it represents. Then we go on through to chapter 11 and in 1119, we see again, the great and terrible day of the Lord. So we have these things reflected again and again. I see it as a an account that is given to us from multiple perspectives in this vision, whether it's a perspective of the seven seals or the seven trumpets. Um, now we're going to discuss the seven signs, which isn't part of that sequence, but then we'll go back and discuss the seven bowls, which again follow the plague motif with Egypt. And we'll unpack that as we look at chapters 15 through, well, really through 17. So we'll get there. But chapters 12 through 14, they unpack this idea of seven signs or seven symbols given here. And these all refer back, it seems, to the scroll that was given to John and he was told to eat. And that when that scroll is explained, there's the, the lamb scroll, there's the measuring the temple, but don't measure the outer courts. There's this distinction between those that belong to God and those that are in the rest of the world. There's a witness of the two prophets. And I go, but I don't get that. Understand it's drawing that contrast. It's drawing that, that dichotomy between those that are obedient to Christ and those that live out the love of Christ and follow the commands of Christ and those who give allegiance and obedience, follow the commands of, live out the will of this world. And that you have those two groups going. And the goal of Christ is to redeem the lost. It is the sharing of the gospel, the showing of the love of God, the offer of redemption and right standing with God towards that lost world. Now, the methodology there may be judgment, maybe let them feel the pain of the consequence of their sin to drive them towards God. Although we see over and over again in the book of Revelation, if not in reality around us or throughout scripture, the coercive um dominant, forceful, does not, does not truly serve the function of the kingdom of God. It is the suffering servant motif that wins. It is the lamb who was slain, his blood shed for others that wins. It is when we love our enemies and when we sacrifice for others, when we as believers live out that obedience to Christ, that we truly see the gospel take hold, that we truly see the lost turn to Christ. And that is what we are called to do. That's what the church of the first century that was under persecution, that suffered from either persecution and or apathy, because it was, those were the two big things going on in the church. You had some churches that were just being persecuted for their faith, and it was hard to hang on. You had other churches that just became apathetic. Maybe they weren't suffering persecution in any great sense, but they were just real apathetic. And as I say that, I have to think in my head, wow, 
have things changed much? There are places in the world where believers are suffering great persecution. And some of them struggle to hang on. And many lose their life for the kingdom for no other reason than they claim the name of Christ and this world hates them for it. And then so many of us seem to suffer from apathy. It's not that big a deal. We think persecution is when somebody decides they don't like us. Um, hmm. Maybe the message of Revelation is pretty relevant for today as well. And not, oh, we're in the last days, Jesus is coming back next week or whatever. But the reality of what it is to live out our faith in Christ, the message of revelation for believers, for followers of Christ to stand strong and to stand true in their faith in Christ and to live that out in obedience, to not become apathetic and to understand persecution may come, but it doesn't change the reality of who Christ is or who we are in Christ. And so we can stand. And even if we lose our lives in this world for the sake of Christ, we gain everything. We have truly lost nothing. Maybe that reality hasn't changed a bit. In fact, I would argue it has not changed a bit. Well, we're going to unpack that battle between those two realms, the redeemed and the lost. And we're going to start unpacking it in chapter 12. And I'll just go ahead and give you a heads up. Chapter 12 deals with framing the cosmic battle between Christ and evil and between his people and evil. And we're going to see that uh, personified in a couple of different ways, if you will. Uh, so let's get into unpacking chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. And remember all these symbols, they all fit in under that scroll that John was given to take and eat that would be sweet on the mouth and sour in the stomach. Um, these are all symbols that we find there or signs, the seven signs that we find there. So join me as we continue to unpack this passage. We'll dig into the text. All right, chapter 12 of the book of Revelation says this, Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. The seven crowns, or with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. 
And the woman fled into the wilderness where God prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days, three and a half years. Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Now, there's a bunch going on there, isn't there? And I read a larger block than I would normally read before we unpack. We covered nine verses there. But in those nine verses, I wanted to kind of lay the background of what's happening. You've got two main characters. And notice he's talking about cosmic events. He's not talking about earthly events. He's not talking about stuff that happens in this realm. He's talking about the stuff that happens in heaven. So this is cosmic. And this spans a tremendous amount of time. This goes from creation on. It says, Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. This was a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, with a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, who is this woman? There's a couple women represented in in Revelation. We'll get to another one a little bit later who has a mm, much less flattering description. This woman, a lot of scholars, I'm sure there's those out there that disagree, but a lot of scholars, and it seems to make sense, feel represents the people of God. Now, Old Testament, that'd be the nation of Israel. Uh, But collectively, this whole account of the woman and her offspring, it's talking about Israel, it's talking about Christians, it's talking about Christ. Now, where do we get that? Well, there's... Uh, something to be said about the, the the whole sun and the moon, moon beneath her feet, crown of 12 stars on her head. There's kind of uh, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. You know, you see the imagery, you're acquainted with the imagery there. So it kind of makes sense. Uh, pregnant, she cried out in labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant. Well, who's she giving birth to? Christ. How do we know that? Because in a few verses, we have that reference to the child being born that would rule with an iron scepter, and that is a direct Old Testament prophecy reference to the Christ. So we know that's Jesus, okay? That's not up for grabs. It's not debatable. That's it. Um, Why three and a half years? I mentioned those dates over in verse 6, the 1,260 days. There could be lots of meanings, but it's things aren't fulfilled yet, but it's in process, uh, seems to be the indication there. Um, it's interpreted in lots of different ways, so I'll, I'll let you chew on that. But I would say probably the most straightforward way to understand that is this is all something that's in process, but not culminated. All right, back up. So we've got the woman. We think she represents maybe at this point Old Testament Israel, or at least the people of God, whether that be Old Testament, New Testament, all together. Out of that comes a birth of the Christ. But in verse 3, we have the other character. We've got the woman. Now we have the other character introduced. 
verse 3, then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. Who would this be? Hmm. Well, he tells us later, it's Satan. What we've got going on here, the imagery between the woman and Satan, that should sound familiar. I've mentioned before multiple times as we've trekked through the book of Revelation that so much of what John references, and yes, divine vision given to him by God, but whether it's God inspiring John to frame it this way or God framing it this way as he gives it to John, I don't know, but it points back to the Old Testament. In fact, this points back to the third chapter of Genesis, where our two main characters, one who is in right relationship with God, but this, the serpent, Satan, Hasatan, seeks to deceive them and lay claim to all of her offspring. Um, that's Genesis 3. That's the garden. That's the temptation. That's, oh no, God doesn't want you to become like him. That's why he said that. Taken captive by a lie. Deceived the world. But you see, the redeemed have been restored to right relationship with God through Christ. That's part of what it is to be redeemed, that our sins have been paid for, wiped away, no longer held to our account so that we can have right relationship with God. And now the world is divided into two groups of people. There are those that are in right relationship with God whose sins have been atoned for. And there are those who have rejected God, who do not follow him, who do not know him as Savior and Lord. Those are the two groups. That's here on earth, but he's talking about something cosmic. He's talking about something in heavenly realms. He's talking about the spiritual battles and the reality that is going on. And that reality is there are those aligned with Christ, those with God, and those against. And Satan is seeking, as John 10.10 describes it, Satan is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And here we see that manifested as this seven-headed, ten-horned dragon. And those are, are images and numbers that evoke the concept of power, the whole ten horns. Uh, the power would be authority. Uh, there's some reference there to the ten hills of Rome and that, that you know, and yeah, uh, Rome can be seen as a representation of this. And we'll get to that in later chapters. There's some real clear imagery on that. But here, in a cosmic sense, we're talking about a dragon who has great power and authority. And it's Satan. But he doesn't have all power and authority. Because that belongs to God. 
And we either align ourselves with Satan or we align ourselves with God. Are we his? Are we lumped in there with that beautiful woman? I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. The other character, I witnessed in heaven another significant event, a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns on his heads, tails sweeping a third of the stars from the sky. What does that mean? Well, some want to pull back over to Ezekiel and go, oh, Prince of Tyre, that's Lucifer. That, And you could go that way. Uh, I think maybe we we make too much of that because Ezekiel is giving a prophecy against a real person, the Prince of Tyre. Um, he uses some wild imagery there that may be prophetic and and speaking of of heavenly realm type stuff and the fall of Satan, but it doesn't specifically state that. So be careful with that. Let's just deal with what this text is telling us in that regard because we don't see a clear reference back over to Ezekiel there necessarily. Um, but we know that this, the beast has incredible power. It causes immense destruction. And right after that sweeping third of the stars from the sky, throwing them to the earth, it says he stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. Now we know from reading ahead, the baby is Christ who was present who was in the world at the time of the birth of Christ that tried to kill him anybody yeah you may remember king herod in fact he wanted to kill him so bad he ordered all male children born in a 2 year window in bethlehem to be slaughtered hoping he got the right one don't know which one it is. Kill them all. Um, yeah, there, there's. It's clearly evoking, and this is 90 A.D. This is after that event took place. They would be looking back and go, "Oh yeah, yeah." Now, are they saying Herod was Satan? No, but they're saying Herod was acting on behalf of that. That's part of that cosmic battle. That's part of what going on. Satan was trying to do everything he could to keep the victory from belonging to Christ. And the first step in that is kill him. His tail swept away one third of the stars in the sky. He threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. And her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, verse five there. Wow. Verse five is awesome. When you start thinking about what verse five encapsulates, it is tremendous because you have the birth of Christ. You have the life of Christ. You have the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension all in verse five. He was born to rule over all the nations with an iron rod. And that doesn't mean heavy handed. It means, um, you know, iron was the strongest material at the time. It would, it would take out bronze or anything else. It was stronger, harder. 
uh, it was a sense of power and stability and strength all rolled into that imagery there. And her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. You see, at the cross, it looked like Satan had won, but he didn't. At the cross, he lost. When Jesus said, it is finished, that, that was the culmination of the redemptive plan. I don't presume to know what Satan thinks, but I suspect he didn't really realize what was going on. But I think it became evident pretty soon. And then it goes on in verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days, three and a half years roughly. Um, this imagery of the wilderness, the nation of Israel was refined in the wilderness. We see other events where individuals are in the wilderness, even uh, even when we look at after the birth of Christ, his family went to Egypt, uh, not exactly wilderness, but still that departure that carried away elsewhere and provided for taking care of. Um, we see that imagery. And I think now you can look at that and go, all right, Christ is taken up to God. Then you've got the woman, if the woman represents the redeemed of Christ, then we are in the wilderness, but we have that promise that God has prepared a place for us and cares for us. Is it easy? I doubt it's ever easy living in the wilderness. Um, is Satan coming after him? Yeah, we're going to see that in the verses ahead. But God has prepared this place and there is protection and provision. And we need to remember that. No matter what we face as believers, no matter what we face as the church, until the return of Christ, until that great day of the Lord, we need to understand God has placed us here and he has a purpose and a plan, but he also cares for us. And he has already won this cosmic victory. Stand firm in that. Hold tight to that reality. Now, as we get to seven, I'm going to read this again, and then I want to point out a few details that you may not have picked up on. In verse seven, it says, then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. Michael, that warrior angel, uh, we, we view him as an archangel. Michael has shown up before. Book of Daniel, we've got Michael. So not a new character in the biblical narrative. It says there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. So notice it's not Jesus and his angels. It's Michael. You don't even get Jesus and God leading the charge. He's sending Michael out to do it with the angels. And that's not a derogatory thing. That's just saying, we're not talking about the big guns here. We're not talking about the most powerful. We're not talking about 
the child that was born with the iron scepter. We're not talking about the lamb. We're talking about one of the archangels. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And, verse 8, and the dragon lost the battle. See, ultimately, evil has been defeated. Christ did that on the cross. Here we're being shown Satan is not all-powerful. Satan, the devil, the personification in this red dragon is not all-powerful. He has been defeated. He tried to thwart God's plans and failed. Then he fought against the forces of heaven led by Michael and failed. Seeing a track record of failure here. Verse 8 again, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down the earth with all his angels. So this is all happening cosmically. This is all happening in a spiritual realm. There is a spiritual battle, spiritual warfare taking place. Satan lost the battle. He and all of his minions, angels, messengers, servants, however you want to define the terms, are cast out. They no longer have any place. They no longer have any standing, any authority in the heavenly realms. They have lost. And if you're questioning, they have lost, verse 8 again. And the dragon lost the battle. So they're cast down the earth. What does that mean? That means there is still a spiritual battle going on, but it's not being fought in the heavenly realms. It's being fought here. It's being fought in an earthly realm. And it looks a bit different than a big seven-headed, ten-horned, seven-crowned dragon but it's still a battle. When Paul reminds us that we do not battle against people, but we're battling against spiritual forces. That's what John's talking about here. The spiritual reality of what is going on. Well, verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. So this is a heavenly announcement. It says, it has come at last, salvation and power. So if you're going to say, what has come at last? Salvation and power. It says, in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. So, the full list here. It has come at last. What has come at last? Salvation and power. What is salvation and power? And the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. The accuser. Hasatan. Satan. The accuser. The adversary. the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Verse 11, 
and they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice, but terror will come on the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. So what have we got going on here? Well, it's it's symbolic, okay? It is this expression of this cosmic battle between the Messiah and his people and the beast, the power of evil. And you see, the reality in our world, the expression that we see here is that what we struggle with isn't really people, it's Satan. It is the lie. It is evil. That evil can be manifest as a Roman soldier persecuting us for our faith, as it was for those who originally received this letter. Or it may manifest in some other way in our current context and life. But what we're struggling with is not against the soldier holding the sword. It's against the evil at work in the world. It is against that serpent. It is against Satan cast down to the earth in defeat, knowing he has little time left. So he's trying to do what he can with the time he has left. That's desperation. That's like dealing with a cornered animal. He's lashing out. And that's a very real thing. It's a real thing that has cost millions of believers their life because they claim the name of Christ. But the voice in heaven can say, they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. Now, it's interesting because in the vision he's seeing here again, we've got this what I see and what I hear thing going on. What John sees is this image of the woman and the Messiah and his people and this beast and the battle wage there. And then Michael comes in with the angels and, and whoops up on him, beats him, cast him down the earth. But the proclamation in heaven is that he is defeated. The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down the earth, the one who accused them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. Who are they that defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and their testimony? The redeemed. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens, rejoice. This is a cosmic battle. This is also an earthly battle. 
this presents to us a battle that has been going on at least since creation. It's a battle we saw in the garden in the third chapter of Genesis. And it's a battle we see right up till the great and terrible day of the Lord. We're in the battle. We are part of who it is talking about there that have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. How do we stand as the redeemed with Christ instead of with the fallen? We stand by the blood of the lamb and the power of our testimony that testimony in him, that testimony of what he has done in redeeming us and what he is doing in our lives now. When we proclaim Christ, there is power. Power that defeats evil. When we try to defeat evil in this world by any other methodology, we are going to fail. We cannot outspend, out-philosophize, is that a word? Sure. Out-apologize, as in apologetics, argue uh, the Christian faith. We, we can't out-anything in this world that will truly make a difference in defeating evil unless it is defeating evil. Defeating Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony. And we need to not love our lives so much that we're afraid to die. Because this is just a moment in our existence. We are granted however many years walking the face of this earth. Years that we can use to turn to Christ, to accept his grace and mercy, to know him and gain the promise of eternal life. In fact, begin to live the reality of eternal life, to be able to declare the power of the blood of the lamb and of our testimony in him. That's our opportunity. When the rest of eternity happens for us. We're not in control of that. But the decisions we make walking this earth shape the rest of eternity for us. So we need to make those decisions well. We need to make them towards Christ. We as believers, as the redeemed, need to live our lives for Him, focused on Him, our priorities centered around Him, not around the things of this world. And it's a struggle. This world is enticing. And this world lies. Because Satan lies and entices. We must stay rooted in Christ to have the power of that victory over Satan over evil, over sin. 
Again, he says in verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens, rejoice. But terror will come to the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. So there's that proclamation from heaven. Now, what's that look like, that coming down to earth, the reality that that we're existing with as we have the devil prowling about knowing he has little time? Scripture describes him as a lion roaming about seeking whom he may devour. A pretty ominous imagery there. But we need not forget the danger that is at hand. There is a threat. Are we secure in Christ? Yes. Have we found power and strength and life in Christ? Absolutely. But there is still an enemy. The enemy is not gone, defeated, but still lashing about before it's all over. So let's look at the next section of verses because it'll talk about what that looks like. In verse 13, when the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of great of a great eagle so she could fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness. Now, I don't think this literally is talking about a woman nor that it literally is talking about a pair of wings. Again, I see the woman in this, uh, in the first part of this chapter as representing initially the nation of Israel, but really all of God's people, all of the redeemed, all those that know Christ fall under that. And they will be taken to a place of safety and security, a place where God will provide and protect them. And that they will do so with the wings of an eagle, wings of a great eagle. Uh, that's imagery, uh, you know, the mount up with wings of eagles from Isaiah. That's actually also referenced in a couple of other Old Testament passages from other books. That is imagery that talks about the strength of God and the deliverance of God. And so God steps in here. God will provide. God will keep safe. So we, we see that happening here, that our trust, our strength, it's all found in God. Our renewal is found in God. So, but she was given two wings like those of a great eagle, so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon. For a time, times, and half a time. Again, uh, roughly, we're not sure what that means, okay? But a lot of biblical scholars think that time, times, and half a time, uh, that that reference to time there, that word would mean year. So year, two years, and a half a year, huh, three and a half years. Keeps coming up. Partial, not complete. Remember is the symbolism for that three and a half years, roughly. Okay, moving on, we get to verse 15. Because she's been taken to the wilderness and she's protected for the, from the dragon for a period of time, whatever that is. Verse 15, it says, Then the dragon 
So he's going after her. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. Now, there's some imagery there that I need to explain. I I don't see anywhere here, and nor have I read anything, where scholars are pointing, oh, that's the flood. No. Because that was totally different. That was God cleansing the earth. Flood, Noah, all that jazz. But what is happening here? There is imagery that would have been known in that day. It was known throughout the Old Testament. I've shared before, even in our study of Revelation, that the sea is seen as a place of evil. Um, even this this pit, Abaddon, the the depths of the pit, was understood to be the depths of the ocean. The ocean was generally considered evil. The imagery of water. Think back to Genesis. Think back to the creation account. Think back to God moving across the surface of the waters and then speaking order into this chaos. That is in direct contrast to the other creation myths of the day. Uh, the um, you've probably heard of the Gilgamesh epic, which is part of Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation myth. And in the Babylonian myth, you still had this this surface of the waters, but the waters were were inhabited by gods. And as um, for the Hebrew imagery of God being over the surface of the waters and then speaking order into that chaos. Even in that day and age, when when uh, Moses penned that, that would have screamed out to the Israelites and from the Israelites to the rest of the world, hey, our God has dominance over everything. Your gods were in the water. Our gods spoke order over the water. Um, our God spoke order over the water. May I pluralize that inadvertently. We have one God. Triune being Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one God. Um, so there's, there's imagery that goes with that. The water is seen as chaos. It is seen as, as formless. It is seen as, as kind of the antithesis of God's creative nature and order. And that would have been understood a little bit by those first century readers, especially in the imagery of what is going on here. When you have the dragon, this source of evil, this personification of evil, and Satan, the serpent. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman, the redeemed, the people of Christ, with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed from the mouth of the dragon. See, God is still in control of creation. God is in charge. He has plan and purpose. He has power and authority. So let's place our trust in him because even when it looks really bad, God is still over it. by opening his mouth and swallowing the river that gushed from the mouth of the dragon. Verse 17, And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children. Maybe we go, oh, great. He's declaring war against the woman and the rest of her children. Wait, who are the rest of her children? Remember Christ, the first fruits? 
the first of the redeemed or not redeemed the first of the resurrected with the promise of resurrection for all of us that we are united with Christ and the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children and then we have an explanation who the children are all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus well there you go who are the rest of this woman's children all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus I hope that's us I hope that's you and I intend for that to be me it's the redeemed it is those secure in their faith in Christ it is those that have been forgiven for their sin and that stand in that faith this is a word of encouragement for those in persecution and a word of caution and warning for those living in apathy remember those were the two struggles of the churches that the book of revelation is addressed to persecution and apathy we see the framing of this cosmic battle as it spills over into our earthly realm and we're really going to get into the earthly battle as we move into chapter 13 so get ready for that because this is just a broad descriptor of the earthly battle we're going to get into a whole lot of stuff with some wild imagery and probably some things you've got questions about like mark of the beast and and stuff like that we'll get there next chapter but here in this chapter the dragon was angry at the woman declared war against the rest of her children we are at war but it is a spiritual war and it's not a war we win in our own power but it is a war that is won by the blood of the lamb and by our testimony remember the image of the messiah in the throne room of god the lamb who was slain who now stands alive the only one that had power to unseal the scroll the power of that lamb in us the power of the blood of the lamb and our testimony those are our weapons those are our strength in this battle against Satan who is angry who has declared war on us but if we stand fast in Christ we will not be defeated we are victorious because the victory has already been won he goes on in verse 18 and admittedly some manuscripts and I think even some translations put verse 18 as the first part of verse chapter 13 but we're taking it here verse 18 then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the sea now that sets the stage for where we're going in the next 
um, series of symbols and this this framing of this earthly battle that takes place. And that earthly battle, it's it's framed around really Daniel chapter 7 through 12 and the imagery found there. So if you want to read ahead, read that. Um, but notice even from uh, looking at the Gospels, wh- what do we hear there? Satan went and he took his stand and where did he take it? On sand. He took his stand on the seashore. Now, you got that imagery of the sea representing evil and chaos. But you also have even that Sermon on the Mount message about a firm foundation and a house built on sand will not stand, but one has to be built on on the bedrock, on solid rock, a solid foundation. We stand on the rock of Christ. We are rooted in the rock of Zion. Um, Yeah. Some of that imagery is going on there too. So these are symbols. These point towards things. Uh, Don't read the seven signs or literally translated signs mean symbols in this. Don't look at these things and go, oh, well, that's... They point towards something and they point towards a spiritual reality. And they do it with an apocalyptic flair of their day. So you've got things like the woman and the dragon. Those were pretty common apocalyptic motifs. But here we've seen it related to Genesis chapter 3. We've seen it related to this battle between Satan and the redeemed. And that's going to continue to play out. We've seen this this call to action to hold fast to the power of the blood of the Lamb and the power of testimony in Him. And not to shy away from that. That challenge and that call to commitment is going to be repeated in the rest of these symbols. Because it's part of the message of the whole book. Stay rooted in Christ. Find your strength and your power in Christ. And understand we do have an enemy and that enemy wants to destroy because he's already failed. So he's lashing out. But the same power that defeated him, Christ, is the power that lives in us because we know him as Savior and Lord, because we hold to our testimony for Jesus. So hold those things. And if that doesn't describe you, then understand it's time for a change. Because what Christ did to redeem us was for you too. If you need to break free of the lie of Satan that has deceived the world and you need to confess your sin and seek forgiveness in Christ, then know that God's invitation is open to you and you can do that. Just turn to God. Speak to Him with your own words. Confessing your sin. Asking Him to forgive you. 
and committing yourself to stand fast in him and your eternity can change today if you need to do that don't put it off I can't tell you this is all going down tomorrow or this afternoon or next week or next year but I can tell you the day is coming when there won't be any more time respond to God now don't put it off next episode we're going to delve into chapter 13 I hope you'll continue along on this journey with me as we seek to understand God's word and as we go through these very challenging images but uh they're images that, that have a background, and I think we can make sense of many of them. Some of them just, we're going to be kind of scratching our heads going, huh, I wonder if that's what that means. But the overall message we will hear loud and clear, because God has made it loud and clear. He stated what the purpose of the book was. It's to call us to faithfulness, is to encourage us as we undergo persecution. So, thank you for joining me. As we continue this study together, let's close out by expressing our thanks to God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, in the the vast tapestry that we see as we study your word, that you have inspired and guided so many over so many centuries, from so many backgrounds and languages and experiences, to share one story story of your relationship with your creation and the links to which you have gone to and are going to to express your love for us and redeem us when we rebelled against you now father help us to understand the things that you have for us in your word as we deal with these father with these cosmic level events and we try to grasp hold of of what exactly is going on with spiritual warfare and what's happening in the heavenly realms. Lord, we, we don't have a frame of reference for that, but we trust you and you have given us what we need to know and to understand. And so father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that our hearts truly would be sensitive to the promptings of your spirit as we study your word and as we live our lives seeking to stand in your power and to declare you in our testimony. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of Jesus the Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.